This is a Federal News Network podcast. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black on Federal News Network. One-on-one interviews with the people who've left a lasting imprint on the government and the nation. Now your host, Aileen Black. Welcome to Leaders and Legends in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Karen Evans, a former Chief Information Officer, DHS, and partner at KNT. Karen is an executive who served with three presidential appointed positions in two administrations. She possesses 30 years of executive level management uh, experience focused on cybersecurity, national security, technology innovation, service delivery, and supply chain risk management. She has served and is serving as an independent director and board member and strategic advisor to several companies. So first, Karen, uh, and I should say the honorable Karen, um, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. I'm really excited to be here. Karen, let's get started. Um, Can you describe your leadership style? Uh, And, you know, I really thought a lot about describing this. And and I think the way I'm going to describe myself the way people describe me, which is that I'm demanding, um, but they know exactly where they stand with me. And uh, usually what they say is, and if you get to know her, she's really a pretty nice person. So I I think I'm pretty clear about what results that I want the team to achieve. And then what I hope and what I expect is, is that the communications is open so that I can get them the resources they need to be able to achieve those results your staff to be able to express that but as long as they know that and they get to the goal that that you've established but they may not get there uh in the way that you thought it should be um that that's perfectly okay because what will end up happening as a leader is that you're going to learn from the way that your staff approaches a situation have you ever found that being a woman leader in male domination uh, dominated situation I, I, that you had to change your your style? I, I know in tech, a lot of times when I come to the table, uh, nobody else looks like me. <laughs> and so sometimes I, I need to think about how I approach things. Have you found that for yourself? I always get asked this question, and you would think that through the years I would have a really good answer for this, but um, I've always approached the situation about really being the expert, right? Like, especially in a tech field, and I, I'm sure Eileen, you you found this yourself, is is that if if you are are the expert, right? Like, you know, you know what you're talking about the rest of the room kind of goes with you and it doesn't matter whether you're a male or a female or, you know, what uh, diversity background that you have. It's because technical people recognize technical expertise, right? And, and, um, and they appreciate that in people and they can tell also when somebody's trying to blow smoke. Right. And so, I've always approached it that way, but I can't say um, that I am a little bit of of a rebel, I would think, is because, for example, when I was working at the Office of Management and Budget, um, I did notice, like, when I would go into meetings, and, and there were males and females in the meetings, but when I would go into the meetings, everybody wore, like, blue or black, and I thought, okay, this is not me, because I went to, I, I 
went to some of these classes and it said, hey, you should dress how you feel comfortable because if you're comfortable in a meeting, then, you know, the rest of the stuff just flows. If you're uncomfortable, then, you know, you're going to be uncomfortable in your presentation. So I wear a lot of colors, right? And I like noticed I was the only one wearing a lot of colors. And then um, what ended up happening was one of the people came up to me and said, um, that they were happy that I was wearing bright colors. And I noticed that people started like changing their ties or changing their scar scars and changing so that um, you could express your individuality. That's the only time I think that I ever really noticed um, a change of what was happening. And one person reached over and whispered and said, how do you feel about being, um, you know, the leader, about being a role model? And I had never thought about myself that way until one of the staff people had said that to me. Karen, does any leaders in, come to mind that in the past have provided you an important lesson or events that caught you an important lesson that you wish, you know, all leaders learned? So yes, there's there's one person who worked with me when I was a GS-14, and I share this lesson with people often. Um, when I was coming up through the career ranks, I started as a GS-2. And um, when I was coming up through the career ranks, I, you hit certain um, peaks in, in your career. So at a 14, I was already, you know, I was a first line supervisor, but I was going for, um, I was going for the 14 position, right? So it was at that 14 level and it was a branch chief position, no longer just a section chief. And, um, and I should have gotten a job. I mean, I was best qualified. I was on the best qualified list. I was one of the final interviewees, um, you know, worked at this agency, knew the subject matter. I mean, I was the expert, worked on the budget, everything, but I did not get the job. And I was really upset because I didn't get the job. I mean, to the point where I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to pack up my desk and I'm going to go home because my husband wanted me to come home anyway. Um, you know, just a bunch of different things. And one of the leaders pulled me aside and she said, Karen, you're getting to the point in your career where it's not just technical competence anymore. It's that, that the senior leadership team looks at this, the team and the complement of skills. And when you reach this level, there are other things that come into consideration. And that's when uh, the softer side of management, the soft skills that we always talk about that you have to have. Um, she really took me aside and explained some of that to me. And um, I think that that was, that was a pivotal point because I didn't get that job. I really reflect back and think, gosh, if I had gotten that job, um, that probably would have been the worst thing for me in my career because I would not have had the time to reflect on, okay, what kind of skill sets, softer skill sets do I need to be able to develop to move to the next level? What obstacles or challenges did you encounter on a personal level? And that, 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 you know, the, you, you know, the example you just gave um, really was a personal level that you had to overcome. How'd you do that to become an effective leader? Well, one, you have to be open to the, the feedback, right? Like you have to really be, and somebody 
has to see in you, and this is what I really appreciated of this one branch chief. She was a branch chief who happened to be a political during that administration, um, but pulled me aside and saw something in me, right? Like saw saw the potential that I could be. And I I thought to myself, like if she thought that much of me to take me aside and talk to me about what I needed to improve in myself, you know, I should really take the time to go back and, and honor that and, and really look to see what types of things I need to improve in myself. Now, now you ask like, okay, so how did you do that? Um, I did go to training, right? There, uh, there's a lot of management training that's offered within the federal government that I think sometimes um, some of the career staff don't really appreciate the opportunities and because I know I didn't when they were offered to me and so I did teach at some of these classes with the office of personnel management and tried to give the other side as I was a person coming up through the ranks and they give you a lot of tools to really reflect and look at yourself like we kind of laugh when we start talking about some of these management different tools but like you know i'm sure aileen you remember like the myers-briggs personality test and um you look at daniel goldman when he looks at emotional intelligence and how they put that out and then peter senge did the uh learning organizations and when you read those you say oh i i recognize you know some of these skills and i i want to be more like this and I want to create an environment like this for my employees. Um, you have to be open to that and then be willing to, to experiment. And I know that sounds kind of bad, but it's experiment. And then take the consequences associated with that. Because if you make a mistake, it's you as the leader. And um, you have to acknowledge that. And then, and then make sure that your staff knows, hey, this, this was my mistake. Here is what I am doing. And so what I've really learned to say is, is that people don't come to work to make bad decisions. They make the best decisions that they can make with the information that they have. And so it's important for us to really share a lot of information so that people can make good decisions. I'm speaking with Karen Evans, former Chief Information Officer, DHS, and partner of KENT. After a break, we'll discuss the importance of investing in people. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black, and today I'm talking with Karen Evans, former Chief Information Officer, DHS, and partner of KENT. Uh, Karen, you've had some of the toughest jobs, uh, what I believe is the toughest kind of jobs to have, which is the CIO, and then even the bigger job of the CIO of DHS. The role of CIO is responsible for so many things, the digital transformation of an organization, making sure the systems never go down, usually under budget. You have to be delivering in record time and with very little resources. Plus, DHS is protecting the homeland. I mean, that's no small job. So tell me about leading as the CIO of an amazing organization like DHS. Well, it was really an honor. I'm glad you asked me that question. It was really an honor to uh, be able to do that. And, you know, I've reflected on my time at DHS. It was short. Uh, because uh, the administration asked me to to move over to that position for a lot of the reasons that you mentioned um, about the mission critical needs of the department and the services that they provide. Um, but I think the difference for me when I went into that role 
is I knew I could do a chief information officer's job, right? I mean, I did it for the entire federal government for six years. And so I, I knew I had the skill set. So I didn't have to prove to anyone that I had uh, that I should be a CIO. What I had to do was go in there and get the organization ready for transition because of the time that I went in. I went in in June in the middle of the COVID uh, shutdown and the pandemic and what uh, DHS was doing to respond to that and and the services that they were providing. Um, The threat landscape as far as cybersecurity had changed, um, obviously, because everybody was um, accelerating everything that they were doing into the virtual world. What was really exciting for me, though, in that job was things that I had talked about things that um, several of my colleagues and I had worked on 15 years ago, dealing with um, infrastructure modernization, right? Network modernization, implementation of IPv6, multi-factor authentication, HSPD-12. I mean, I could go through and list all of the initiatives that we were working on 15 years ago. You got to see how that foundational work really helped leverage the government and pivot during the pandemic. I think people were surprised at how fast the federal government could pivot and DHS never stopped its services, which was really exciting, right? And so you didn't see that, oh my gosh, they have to go offline or any of these types of things like that. They could pivot and they could scale up. And these are things that, you know, previous CIOs at DHS have been working on. And uh, you got to actually see what that means. It meant something to people about, oh, that's what you mean about network modernization. Oh, that's what you mean about why we have to do uh, multi-factor authentication. Oh, you know, oh, this is what it means to move to the cloud and to have cloud-ready applications. I mean, it was, that part of it was really very, very exciting, right? And so the other thing is, is that I know the landscape. So a lot of CIOs, especially when they come in from the private sector, that transition is is tough. And because I, you know, came in in June and the election was going to be in November, I was uh, preparing for transition because regardless of who won the election, there's always a transition. New leadership comes in, right? Old leadership goes out. And there are things that the CIO uh, is doing initiative-wise that you can't stop. Like you have to keep those trains rolling. You have to be able to transition a new political team while the and and check out the old political team like a lot of back office things that they have to run without a hitch and you have to support that transition team to make sure that the new leadership can come on board and so um, we really were very very focused on making sure all of that happened. So when you approach these big type of decisions, leaders have different approaches to decision making processes and and setting priorities. You know, do you make your decisions as a group? Do you do you, uh, have a tendency to um, you know ask for information and then make a decision? I mean, or does it change depending upon the situation? So that's always a great question too, right? And. Um, And people, especially like when I was working at OMB and, you know, led the CIO council. So I'm talking, you know, so I specifically said lead, right? (laughs) And so um, when you hear some people talk about, well, we make decision by consensus, this is my personal opinion, 
right, is is that when when you say that, that means like no decisions get made, right? Because um, it's hard to get consensus. And so it's more of what you described about, um, okay, a decision is gonna have to be made. I'm the one who's gonna be held accountable for the decision. I'm gonna take all the input that I can prior to making the decision, but I, I'm the one who makes the decision. So uh, if you asked about like, how did this work at DHS, for example, right? Um, DHS has a CIO council internally because of the components and the, you know, there's major components there. Like you said, there's, you know, Custom and Border Patrol, there's ICE. I mean, there's all kinds of things, TSA, uh, Secret Service. And so, um, you know, when we got together, I would lay out, hey, here's the path. Here are things that we're going to be held accountable for. Here's the uh, decision making and the recommendations that I have to make going forward uh, to support the budget, for example, or acquisitions, things related to acquisitions because uh, of the way the CIO's authorities are. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, I would lay it out and say, hey, here is what I'm getting ready to publicly release. You guys have, you know, until XYZ date to make the case as to the reason why this is not your score based on the evidence that we have here at headquarters. Um, and components that have good management practices within their own components would come back and challenge the data that we had at headquarters. And others were like, okay, where did you get that? We need to have a discussion. We need to figure out what's happening between what is being submitted to you versus what I have internally. And, and and so if you work it that way, because they're not the ones that get called to the hill, they're not the ones that uh, have to talk to the oversight or defend uh, over to the secretary about some of these things. It's the CIO who, who is leading the information technology and those investments. And at DHS, which is really good, I know when you look at some of the scorecards from the outside, you know, the, the reporting mechanism is in through the management, uh, the undersecretary for management, but all of the DHS orders and the way that things are set up there, the CIO is the chief risk officer from that perspective, right? Uh, the, has the supply chain risk management. Um, it was designated the lead for section 889, which is supply chain with the telecommunications equipment. Um, also has cybersecurity, has information management, has records management. It is set up with the authorities the way that everyone envisioned it and it's and and the position is dual had it which reports to the secretary and to the undersecretary for management which i also think is critical because you have to have that cxo relationship because of the functional lines of business that you're providing that support for the department that if you don't have that cohesiveness and that team building the way that mr ellis who was the de who is the deputy undersecretary and he was the acting undersecretary of management. He built that team uh, environment so that we were working together in order to continue to provide those business resources and functional capabilities for the components. You have had such huge missions before DHS, uh, you know, especially in the areas of cybersecurity. 
you've led some pretty amazing teams that accomplished some pretty um, big jobs. How did you get your team to focus on a plan that others might not think is achievable? Or how did you lead through that, that, that kind of impossible experience? So I had um, one person tell me one time that, um, that, that, and I'm trying to make sure I pick my words right here, is, is that um, they may not necessarily understand why I was asking them to do something, right? And so this was Department of Defense, and it was through uh, some of the work that they were doing at the CIO Council, but it was around cybersecurity and workforce development of cybersecurity. And uh, I really asked them about, I said, hey, you really need to take a look at your workforce and really get this workforce study done because it's going to be foundational going forward and tried to explain it. And he came back and said, okay, I'm not 100% sure why you're asking me to do this, but I know you wouldn't be asking me to do something that wasn't going to be you know, supportive, worthwhile, or produce results. And so I think part of it has to do with uh, your reputation to deliver results, right? Like your your ability to execute um, out on a vision. And, and your vision has to be practical, right? And support, especially in the government, supportive of mission, because everything we've been talking about, Aileen, has all been mission-oriented, not just technology for technology's sake, but mission-oriented. And so um, he wrote back to me like two years later after it was done and I was out of government. He said, okay, I have to follow up and tell you, I didn't understand why exactly you were asking us to do this workforce study, but I have to tell you that we have used it for the last two years to justify uh, their personnel, right? Um, showing what, where there were gaps, being able to show the skill sets that they needed going forward to the future. And he said, I'm so glad you asked me to do this. And so I think some of it has to do with being able to see two to three, like over the horizon. And this is what I say CIOs uh, this is their skill set, right? A really good CIO sees the world as it is, and that's the existing environment that they're in, but they also see the world as it could be through the use of technology. And if you can navigate to where the world could be with a good plan and being adaptable and flexible in the plan, then, then your team um, executes out to get to that vision because they can see it as well. I'm speaking with Karen Evans, former Chief Information Officer at DHS and partner of KE&T. Coming up next, we'll talk about being a leader that is trying to lead through these challenging times. You're listening to Leaders in Legend Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black. Welcome back to Leaders in Legend Government on Federal News Network. I'm Elaine Black, and today I'm talking with Karen Evans, former Chief Information Officer of DHS and partner of KE&T. You know, Karen, there's so many articles right now out about empathetic leadership and uh, people are tired. There's a great resignation, you know, really, um, you know, understanding people and leading people is important. First off, I got to ask you, what do you think about that leadership style, empathetic leadership? Well, I mentioned a couple authors in the, the beginning, a couple segments earlier, and, and one of them was Daniel Goleman, which actually talks about emotional intelligence, right? And 
when you read through that, you look at that and you say, that actually really does make a lot of sense, especially somebody like me who's very goals oriented, right? I'm goals oriented. And if I know that about myself, that means that I have to look at people who uh, are more feeling, right? If we talk about some of the Myers-Briggs types of things, right, that they use that piece. And that's the piece that you're talking about is the empathy piece. Um, because people in the old days, back in the day, this is what I started telling people when I was back in government. I said, you know, you're old when you start saying back in the day is um, it, when we were, I was growing up, it was like, hey, check your emotions at the door. You're here to do a job, you know, whatever uh, other things that are going on. That's not, you focus on your job. And what I learned through the years is like people are people. And as much as you want to be able to compartmentalize, uh, some people can do it and some people can't. And and it's not realistic for a manager to believe that people can just take that those bags and leave them at the front door and then walk through the front door and do their job. It just, it doesn't work. And I think what has happened is the pandemic and that shift has emphasized the fact that you you have to be cognizant of the environment that your staff works in. And, and that really came to light, right? And so what I thought was really interesting, and I'm going to go back to uh, DHS again, is that when I uh, reported for duty at DHS, you know, they were in the middle of the pandemic. So a couple of people did come in. I will share a funny story, though. Within two hours of being there, the secretary did call me and started talking to me about video conferencing. And are you up at St. E's or are you down at, at uh, you know, 7th and D? And I was like, yeah, OK. Uh, so I'm like, oh, I'm back in operations again. And so, so but there's nobody there right? Because they were all remote working. And then you you extrapolate that out. They're remote working at home. Now, what was good for me is I was out for 10 years. So I knew how to work from home and work with remote teams because I had set up the U.S. Cyber Challenge, which was a nonprofit and everybody was volunteering. So they, you know, like you to build a team and we didn't have good Zoom and all this video conferencing. It was conference calls and appealing to people to do uh, the right thing for the nation. So when you ask about that empathy, it's understanding that, you know, people have multiple roles and work is just one of them. And now their roles were converging because they were working from home. That's really tough. And and so you could see that through the workforce. Our human capital officer, Angie Bailey, if you ever get a chance to interview her, you should. Um, she put in a lot of resources and we tried to have a lot of meetings to make sure that they had access and knew that those resources were there so that they could deal with this new environment that they were in. You know, uh, leading with empathy uh, is sometimes a double blind for some women because, um, you know, being kind can be seen as being weak, but being direct can be seen as being, you know, a bully or uh, other B words that might be used. Um, how do you balance that when you approach that? I mean, as, you're, as, you, as you evolved over the years, you were very open to learning different things. How did you, how did you reconcile that? 
So I would um, go back to some of the training courses that I took as well, right? And we I've shared a little bit about being uh, in, introspective about looking at things. And one of the training courses that I took that led me to achieving senior executive service, right? Which is, you know, I try to tell everybody that's like Top Gun, the best of the best of career ser- uh, civil servants. One of the exercises in that was uh, what's going to be on your gravestone when you die? What do you want written on your gravestone when you die? And you had to really like they made you go through this exercise and then you had to do a video and talk about it. And when I really reflected on that, I said, you know what I want on my gravestone is that I was a good wife and mother. And when you think about that, a good wife and mother is a lifetime journey and working is just one of the things along the way, right? And so I tell people that all the decisions that I made through my career were about, you know, is this about my family and, um, you know, careers? And, and so this is a longer answer to this, but one of the things that we had to do early on, because my husband and I are high school sweethearts, we started going out when he was 16 and I was 17 years old. And, um, and you know, there's a lot of growth and, <laughs> and we're still together and we have two children that are 31 and 28 now. And uh, before we had to make really tough decisions because both of us were working, we had to make a decision. We made a decision as a couple as to who had the number one career. And we decided it was my husband that, you know, he's a dentist and he's retired. So I tell everybody my career is the second career, which usually if we were in an audience, their eyes would all pop open and go, what? And so when you do that, and you know what those core values are, you can make the decision. So the blending of being direct, because I'm known for being direct and results-oriented, as we've talked about, demanding uh, those types of things, because I know where I want to go. But it comes from a place of core values of family is first. And so that's the empathy part that you're talking about. And when you're true to those two pieces, Um, It is demonstrated in your leadership style. It really, truly is. And so when you you make decisions, people can tell and they can tell that you're making those decisions from those places. But you have to be open and willing to share that information. So I'll reflect back to um, starting at DHS in a virtual environment. I I did like I was taken back because you would get on a Zoom call, right? Uh, government and actually they use teams there they they did a lot with teams um when you you get on that call like you'd be like oh my god there's 300 people in on this call and that that was that took me back a little because i'm thinking like 300 people on the call and then i had a core leadership team that you know i would task daily on stuff and the one person told me that he said well karen you should think about it like this because of the technology your message is being heard directly by the employees, which is true, right? Um, Because normally in a traditional environment, you would hold it with your senior leaders, then, you know, the next uh, level of management. And then it would be like what I call whisper down the lane. It's subject to interpretation of how they hear it through their lens. Um, This way, you know, your employees are hearing it directly from you. 
And then your actions support that. So, you know, I made it very clear that it's family first, especially in the pandemic. It's family first. You need to think about, you know, what your interactions are, you know, who is in the core family that you're taking care of? Do they have any of these comorbidities that you have to look at? Don't expose yourself, right? Like it's not important for you to come into the office. What's important is for your manager to explain what your responsibilities and what your deliverables are so that you can do this. I think that was the other challenge was um, managers had to adopt their style and, and, and adapt, right? And they had to be able to articulate the outcomes for their employees. And some managers are really good at that and some need additional assistance. You're listening to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today we're talking with Karen Evans, former Chief Information Officer of DHS and partner KE&T. Next, we'll find out Karen's advice to the next generation of federal leaders. Welcome back to Leaders and Legend in Government on Federal News Network. I'm Aileen Black, and today I'm talking with Karen Evans, former Chief Information Officer of DHS and partner at KE&T. Karen, um, there's been so many recent articles about China winning the race around technology. What investments do you believe uh, federal leaders or private industry leaders can do to help in that matter to keep America in the lead for innovation and technology, especially in the area around cyber? Well, I'm really excited that you asked that question. And uh, I really think that there's a lot that we're doing as a nation going forward. I think in particular, Uh, some of the areas to really look at is artificial intelligence and how we're doing things in artificial intelligence, quantum computing, there's a lot of investment and it does make sense that the government should do some of the investment in quantum networks and quantum computing. And so um, I was really excited when I was at the Department of Energy to, to see what the national labs are doing and and you know if you don't keep up with the national labs like we forget a lot of times that we have 17 national labs i mean that there is a lot of innovation that's happening there and a lot of information and a lot of research as it relates to cybersecurity and supply chain risk management and how we have to think about uh, integrating products back into for example, the grid, right? Because we want to do things with renewables and and solar and all these different things that allow the possibilities for the future. But we do have infrastructure that is implemented and we have to integrate the two of them. And that is where we have to really look at the risk of how this is, is going to happen and its total risk. So cybersecurity, I think it's it's come of age from the aspect of like, oh, it, it used to be around uh, information security and you, you know, you see, depending on how you want to say it, CISOs, CISOs, you know, they're chief information security officers. And so if they, the evolution of that is getting to chief security officers or chief risk officers, right? And, um, and it's really looking at what is the business and how do we use technology and how do we do these things and what is the context around it, right? And, so if, if you look at things as a nation, 
then you're starting to look at, okay, how do we help small and mid-sized businesses? And um, because they drive innovation, right? That's the Silicon Valley, that's Austin, Texas, Boston. And you see some of these programs coming out and, and they're maturing, right? From the Department of Defense uh, with their DUIX type of thing. InQtel is another one that's over in the intelligence community, DHS, S&T, the way the science and technology group is investing in different types of research and development. Those are critical uh, in order for us to maintain that innovative edge and for us to make sure that we're competitive globally. And so when you look at the nation state threat, right, you're looking at where, where am I on that pendulum. And if I'm within a department or an agency, then I'm defending the mission. But in order to defend, you have to understand the offense, right? You have to be able to understand how that works. And I'll go back to DHS. DHS is really at the nexus along with Department of Justice, GSA, Intel, DOD. So there's a couple things that are evolving right now that I would say people really need to make sure that they stay up on. And that's like the Federal Acquisition Security Council. Uh, Congress passed that legislation. Uh, this executive order with this administration has brought together a lot of pieces from the last 15 years and put it all in one place so that the agencies can move forward in a collective manner. Um, that that Security Council in integration with uh, is happening with FedRAMP and then some of these other big initiatives that will happen, they, they're integrating the risk that you brought up, Aileen, talking about like China, right? That's why the intelligence component and the intelligence, the DNI being a full partner in these is really great because now you can make a very holistic uh, decision about where to invest going forward as a federal government. You know, one of the biggest challenges any tech company, and I believe the government has today, is recruiting tech talent. You know, you, you talked about the, uh, you know, the understanding of the defense or, or um, the offense. Well, the many countries begin uh, developing this talent in, in grammar school uh, and, and teaching kids cybersecurity and how to uh, how to code AI. Um, do you think you know our country needs to change the way that we approach education? I know you you had uh, you participated in the cyber challenge. I mean, how do you feel about that? Well, it's a passion of mine for sure, right? And it's it's all about the people, and uh, we can. I used to tell my staff this all the time, and so I'll, I'll share it with the audience. I I always said a fool with a tool is still a fool, right? So it's not about the tools. It's about the, the people and the education of the people. So to your point, there is um, an opportunity for us to be able to, to change and to adapt. And it's going to take a longer time, right? And so there's an immediate need where our nation is, is structured to be able to do this. It's getting the right content uh, in, in place, right? So we have community colleges. We don't all have to have four-year degrees. We have trade schools. Um, and I think if you think about this on a continuum, right, like skill sets between one and 10, not everybody needs to be a 10. It's like medical school, you know, like 
we need brain surgeons, but not all doctors become brain surgeons. Not all lab technicians become brain surgeons, right? They become the best lab technician that they can. We have enough other professions that we can see how they've evolved. And I really believe that cyber is in that process of that evolution, right? Like, what do we really need? Um, what do we need today? What do we need midterm and what do we need in the long term? And so several of us have been working on this. I want to say, I know I've been working on it all the way back to when I was a CIO because Klinger Cohen had us looking at skill sets for our workforce. But um, I also think to your point that there's, and I'm calling it cyber acumen, there's a certain amount of cyber savvy everyone has to have because you're using technology. And so that's that's the education of the workforce. And I think the opportunity is there because like there's those of us who have been talking about supply chain risk management for years. Well, now everybody knows what it means, right? Um, because they can apply it to what just happened in a pandemic. Uh, everybody understands the implication now of ransomware and multi-factor authentication because you saw the impact in your everyday life when Colonial Pipeline uh, did not have multi-factor authentication in uh, a particular service that allowed an adversary to come into their network. So it, there are examples, you know, where you can explain this now to the American people and they're like, yeah, yeah, I, I want to know more about that. I want it. So people are eager. I think now is the time for us to really put, Congress wants to put the resources in there. So let's really look at this and it's got to be multi-vector it just can't be like oh we need more people in stem we actually need everybody to be educated up to a certain level or know where to get resources or know who to call that can help them because you are all using technology i don't know too my husband just switched over to a smartphone because they told him that his phone was no longer going to have service in the next two months that's how long he stayed on his flip phone so like it's the society is switching, so we have to make sure the resources are there so people are, are that they understand the risk of the services that they're using. Karen, you have had such a successful career. It's truly inspirational. What And do you have any pearls of wisdom that you would uh, like to share with the next generation or maybe somebody you would like to follow in your footsteps? I would say the biggest thing is... You have to know yourself and know your strengths and weaknesses. And sometimes that's really hard to be reflective and look inward. And it's easier to build the teams because you know, you know your own weaknesses so that you can hire compliments to your weakness so that you're really a good team going forward. And then you can accomplish those results. But if you, you hire everybody who looks like you, then you're going to have blind spots. And when I say look like you, I'm not talking about like all women who are Japanese American like myself. I'm talking about all people who are goals oriented, right? Um, then, then you lose the part that you brought up, Aileen, which is the empathy part about knowing that, that people are people and we have to reach to the people to get the best that's in them so that they can deliver the results for the American people. You've been listening to Leaders and Legend in Government. My guest today has been Karen Evans. Karen, I, I just want to thank you for joining us today and sharing your personal journey and some seriously valuable advice. 
Oh, thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity. I really do. I'm Aileen Black. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Leaders and Legends in Government with Aileen Black. Subscribe to this podcast at Apple Podcasts or Podcast One. You're finally at that hot new spot, the one your friends keep raving about, sitting across from your date. It's going... Another round? Really well. And that dish you've been dying to try, oh, it's headed your way. You can smell it, hear it sizzling fresh off that skillet as it comes closer, closer, and served. Go ahead, enjoy. After your phone sneaks a bite first. When you're with Amex, it's not if it's going to happen, but when. American Express. Don't live life without it.